thanks to each of you for not only being here today, but for sharing your praises and sharing your lives with each other. That's been one of the great blessings to me this year is just being able to see how God works in each of your lives and um, the blessing that I, that is as we share it. I hope you had a great Easter. It was an interesting weekend, wasn't it, with the snow and then the cold. And I don't know if you were like me, you're trying to figure out what in the world do you wear um, you know, on Easter Sunday, if it's snowing, I know they have that figured out up in the Northeast, but we don't usually have to worry about that here, do we? But I know we all did, and it was just uh, being a part of a church at Easter is a delightful thing. I have to share with you, we're back today to talk about living as a wise church, and I can always confirm to you that I believe Christ Chapel does an excellent job as living as a wise church, and I have positive confirmation of that for you this morning because I have to share with you that um, uh, we wisely, even in the midst of things like Easter, which is a very busy season around the church, we know how to have fun here on the staff at Christ Chapel. The women's ministry sponsored a peeps contest for the staff. You know, peeps, those little marshmallow, um, I I think they're chickens. I can never really figure out what they really are. They're all kind of mashed up, you know. And um, so Ellen Schaefer uh, sent out to the whole staff that we're having this peeps contest. It was widely acclaimed and poorly participated in. But, um, (laughs) But we did have one entry, and I want to show you on the screen, this was our one entry to our Peeps contest. It's actually, I think it's a Noah's Ark. I think that's what it is, is it's supposed to be a Noah's Ark. And Susan Hines, who's our wonderful graphic designer here at Christ Chapel, worked hard on this. She kept emailing everyone things like, I haven't heard a peep about the winner of the uh, uh, contest. She sent us all pictures, and I wanted to be able to share with you our one and only entry that won the contest. Now, an entry that was on time. And Susan, for all of her efforts, won two tickets to the 1110 worship service here (laughs) at Christ Chapel. And I don't think she wanted to worship at 1110, but those were the tickets uh, that she got. We did have, on Easter Sunday, our own Emily Childs went home and worked on her entry, and here it is. She cheated just a little bit, because I think that's a Fisher-Price castle with the peeps right there, and I think she called it Cinder Peep, is what she called it on Cinderella and uh, so she submitted that after Easter Sunday and we all enjoyed it and for her efforts we awarded Emily the opportunity to clean up the wheat all over the sanctuary Uh, you know we're still waiting for the fresh baked bread from the gleanings of the wheat but um, anyway I just wanted you to know that I think a wise church knows how to have fun and as you can see our peeps contest was um, not a big hit but We got it done. I couldn't resist sharing that with you this morning. So thanks, Rob, for putting those up there. We're back today to talk about living as a wise church, and I want you to turn with me in your Bibles back to Titus. We're going to finish up Titus chapter 1. Last week I shared with you when we started out about my dad and how we used to take those float trips down the Brazos River, and whether it was fall or spring or whatever, he used those big rocks along the river to navigate. 
There's some big rocks of truth also in God's word that are just as trustworthy for us that are going to teach us how to live as a wise church. And this morning we're going to continue in Titus looking for some of those big rocks that are going to keep all of us on the path of living as a wise church. We talked about last week that the church is actually a New Testament revelation and that each of us, as we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, becomes part of this new revelation, the body of Christ, which is the church. It's interesting to me that God has first placed each one of us in a physical family. He gives us a physical earthly family with parents and children and aunts and uncles and cousins. Our earthly physical families are God's design, and they're our place to belong from the moment we appear on this earth. In the New Testament, he gives us another gift. He gives us a spiritual family. He gives us the church, the body of Christ, as another place that we belong. And just as our physical family is a place to belong and to learn and to grow and to mature, so is our spiritual family. In the spiritual family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we grow and mature, we're also going to be probably spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to those who are younger than us in the faith, who are on the journey on the road behind us. A wise New Testament church is not a building and it's not a weekly event. It is a spiritual family for each one of us. It's a place to belong. I want you to, before you leave today, to just take a moment and look around the room because these are the women that are part of your spiritual family. Along with being a place to belong, a wise church is also a place to become. A place to become all that God intends for each one of us to be. A place to become more like Christ each and every day. Paul says this about a place to become on your verse sheet, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God intended a church to truly be a place where we would become all that he means for us to be. Paul, in his instructions to Titus for the baby church in Crete, talks to us about the practical truths that are going to make a local church really a place to belong and a place to become. One, and he told us this last week as we began, uh, in order to become a place to belong and a place to become, a church has to be organized. No one wants to belong to chaos, and no one benefits from chaos. We all simply become more confused and more disorganized. So we saw Paul give Titus last week in verse 5 of chapter 1 his mission statement. And he said to Paul, set things in order and appoint leadership in all of these baby churches. Don't let these baby churches drift this way and that. Help them plot a course to be a place to belong and a place to become. Help them do that by giving them the truth of God's word, which... Paul's apostolic authority had for Titus and by helping them develop a strong leadership to build on. This week as we read Paul's letter, we're going to discover three more big rocks of truth for living as a wise church, a place to belong and a place to become. And the first one is on your outline. 
And it says, a wise church recognizes and rebukes false teachers. Turn with me to um, Titus 1, verse 10, and let me read with you there. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. For that and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. I think we can tell here that Paul is profoundly disturbed by the evidence of false teachers and the prevalence of false teachers in the church. He talks about false teachers not only here to the church in Crete, but he also talks about false teachers in his letter to his other mentee, Timothy, that we talked about last week. He left Timothy at the church in Ephesus. And he says this to Timothy about the false teachers in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1. (coughs) Excuse me. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Paul is combating false teachers on every front, it seems, and he has great concern about what's going to happen in the church. And in verse 10, he gives Titus, his young pastor and friend, a concise description of what false teachers are. And they are rebellious, they're ignorant, and they are deceptive. They refuse to submit to the true message of the gospel. They are ignorant of the truth, and yet they talk as if they have knowledge. And their teaching actively leads people astray. I had something interesting happen to me in the great room last Sunday, right out there on Easter Sunday. I met a man, I met someone, who was at Christ Chapel for the very first time. In fact, he was at a church worshiping for the first time in many years. And the reason I discovered later is that sometime in his past, a false teacher had deceived his family. And they had ended up giving their entire life savings to a ministry that promised healing that they never delivered on. This family had been led astray by a false teacher. And since then, for many, many years, they had held every church at arm's length. They had been angry at God, and they were disbelieving of anything that had to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his text right here, Paul gives us a quote from a 6th century B.C. poet named Epimenides. And this quote was widely taken to be true in the Cretan world. And Paul obviously agrees with his assessment. But Paul's not talking here. He's not trying to make a racial slur against all Cretans when he says, even one of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Paul's not ethnic stereotyping, but what he's doing is using this poet's description of Cretans as his description of the false teachers in the baby churches at Crete. They were liars and gluttons and evil brutes as far as Paul was concerned. 
And it's with that character in mind that Paul has absolutely no trouble telling Titus to not only silence the false teachers of Crete, but to rebuke them sharply. Paul doesn't have any concern that he's stepping on anyone's uh, rights of free speech, which is such a huge deal in our culture and society today. Everyone has to have the right to say anything, anytime, anywhere because of the First Amendment. Paul doesn't have any concern for the rights of free speech. His concern here is that those false teachers that have stepped off the path of the truth be restored to soundness in their faith. It's a great example here, and he demonstrates it for us, that even with false teachers, the ultimate goal of discipline among believers and in the church is to restore the one who is in error, even if it's a false teacher. Galatians 6.1 on your sheet says, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, Paul doesn't talk about gently here with Titus. He talks about a sharp rebuke, and that's because he's hoping that in Titus' sharp rebuke that those who are in error will cease paying attention to the Jewish myths that are being propagated by the false teachers. They'll cease paying attention to the commands of those who reject the truth because in our church today, or in any church, including Paul's church, False teachers should always be disciplined so that they may be restored to a true faith. Paul gives us another clue in verses 14 and 15 here of this text that part of the false teaching in Crete, although he tells us that some of it has to do with Jewish myths, part of the false teaching also has to do with something called Gnostic asceticism, which is strict legalism, strict rules about eating and drinking and purification that... Um, the sect of Gnostics back in Paul's day held that if you kept all of these special little rules that you would have inside knowledge. You would have a spiritual life that no one else could attain to. This is not the first time that Paul has had to address Gnostic asceticism or even Jewish myths being added to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He's seen other teachers who take the truth and add to it. 1 Timothy 4 on your verse sheet says, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Adding rules and regulations to the true gospel or subtracting important principles from the gospel, such as grace or the principle of salvation through faith alone, is actually one of the hallmarks of all false teachers. It's true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day also. They start with the grain of truth, and then they add to it here and here and here. Or they start with the whole truth, and they subtract little bits to it. Wise teachers are aware that wise churches are aware that false teachers alter the truth to fit their personal agendas. The scriptures tell us actually that adding or subtracting from God's message goes against God's word. Deuteronomy 4:2 says, "Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you." 
In these verses, Paul also reminds Titus and the churches in Crete of the Lord's teaching that purification is largely a matter of the internal rather than the external. Lynn gave us some great lessons on that when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount recently. It's not what we put inside of us that makes us unpure. It is what is on the inside of us, our hearts, that makes everything else either pure or impure. Mark 7.15 on your verse sheet says, Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Paul is pretty direct with Titus and the baby churches that false teachers are always more concerned with externals rather than internals. Nothing outside can corrupt someone whose heart is pure, but someone who has a corrupt heart corrupts all that he touches. And as a result... When we have that kind of impure heart, even though false teachers claim to know God and claim to follow God, and they always do, they always say, I know who God is and I follow him, their impure hearts are going to eventually give them away. Their actions will never line up with their words. False teachers will deny God by the way that they live. First John 2, 4 on your sheet says, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. A wise church, a church that desires to be a place to belong and a place to become, is going to have to be as profoundly concerned about false teachers as the Apostle Paul was and the other New Testament writers were. The Apostle Peter was also gravely concerned about false teachers in the First Testament church, and he was also concerned about the false teachers that would be in the church in the days to come. Second Peter 2 on your sheet says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And Jude, who wrote a very short little one-page letter, just a few verses to the New Testament church, Jude, in his short letter, encourages us as believers who belong to the body of Christ to fight for the truth, to stand up and contend for the faith so that false teachers will have no opportunity in our church to turn the church into a place where grace and Christ are denied. Jude 3 says this, Dear friends, even though I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. A wise church is going to have to contend for the truth that we know is real and exists. And I think a wise church has at least three tests that they can apply to false teachers and their disciples. And the first one is, a test that a church can apply to a false teacher is, is its origin divine revelation or human tradition? 
And you know, ladies, as we sit here today, we're very, very fortunate because we hold divine revelation right here in our hands. It's the Word of God. It's our measuring stick and it's our plumb line that we can hold up to any teacher in this church today, any teacher in a church out there in the world, any teacher in the world. And we can ask, is what they're saying from God? Is it divine revelation or is it from man? And if that teaching does not hold up to the word of God, if we can't find what they're saying here, if they have added or subtracted from it, um, then we can know that its origin is not divine revelation. On a practical level, I want you all to know that here at Christ Chapel, everyone who teaches the scriptures with our permission and authority, anyone that teaches here at Women in the Word, any of the teachers that you've seen, myself and Deb and Lynn and Wendy and all the other teachers that are going to be teaching this summer, the teachers that teach adult ed Sunday school classes on Sunday morning, the teachers that teach mighty men, the pastors that stand up here on our stage and teach the scriptures on Sunday morning, all of them have signed an agreement. They've signed a document that say they hold to the Constitution and the doctrinal statement of Christ Chapel, and they will not teach against that. And what that does, because our doctrinal statement says that we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, literal word of God, what that does is um, point our teachers down the path of teaching what the scriptures say and not what human tradition says. It also is um, a level of accountability that no one teaches unless they have actually signed that statement and they hold it to be true. And then if someone comes along and we discover, wait a minute, that's not what the Word of God says, then we have a measure and an avenue to say, you know, you're probably not going to be a teacher here at Christ Chapel. The second test a wise church should have for false teachers is whether the primary concern of the teaching is genuine spiritual transformation that results in life change. You know, concern with outward appearances and legalistic rituals, such as we're being taught by the false teachers to the baby churches at Crete, will never change lives. I don't care how many times you do those rituals over and over and over again. It's not going to transform the inner man. Only God's truth will result in inner transformation and life change. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor and a Bible teacher who for many years had a a radio program that was, I think it was called Through the Bible. And J. Vernon McGee said this about the dangers of false teaching. He said, ceremonies and rituals cannot change the evil heart of man. Only the word of God can change the human heart. When the heart is changed, the life will reveal change. False teachers whose primary concern is outward appearances and legalistic rituals will never hold up to the standard of inner transformation and life change. And thirdly, a wise church is going to have to ask whose glory is being sought and taught. False teachers have no concern that God is going to be glorified through changed lives. Their concern, just as Paul has pointed out to us in this passage, is for dishonest gain. False teachers are concerned about what they can get out of it. Can they get personal fame out of it? Can they get uh, financial gain? Wise churches understand that everything, no matter what it is, is all for God's glory alone. 1 Corinthians 
10.31 on your verse sheet says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Our next big rock for living as a wise church is a wise church teaches sound doctrine as the foundation for godly living. We're going to read what Paul says to Titus here, beginning in chapter 2. And I want to remind you, you may have talked about this in your small group leaders meeting, we're going to take out those great verses on women and um, here at 3, 4, and 5 because we're going to spend the entire week. I think women need a whole week, don't you? Uh, We're going to spend the entire week next week talking about um, the relationship a wise church has to its women, so I'm going to skip over that. You You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed, because they have nothing bad to say about us." Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You know, if a church is going to be not only a place to belong, but a place to become, it's going to have to be a place where we can grow and mature. Consequently, it's going to have, have to have healthy teaching and sound doctrine. Paul gives us a really strong contrast here um, from the false teachers that he has just warned us about. You know, back in verse 16, he told us, he described the victims of the false teachers, the ones who had been led astray by the false teachers. He des- described them as denying God with their actions, being detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. And he contrasts it as he begins here with what we might call the AARP group or the senior citizens. And he addresses the importance of sound teaching that's going to build up the inner life so that the behavior of any believer is consistent with their beliefs. Sound doctrine in a wise church is not simply words on a piece of paper that we keep at the information booth and hand out to our visitors on Sunday morning. Sound doctrine in a church is best displayed by the lives of its people. Healthy teaching, which is another word for sound doctrine, healthy teaching should live itself out in the lives of those who belong to the body of Christ. Earlier we heard Paul say that some in the church claimed to know God, but their actions didn't line up with that. They denied him by their actions. And certainly the lives of the victims of false teaching that we just talked about are definitely not in harmony with sound teaching. We see Paul giving Titus direct instructions here on what older men are going to need, um, what their lives are going to need to look like so that their lives will be a testimony to what they have become through their faith, through the healthy teaching that they do receive in the church. According to Paul, older men who do live out their faith should be taught through God's wisdom to be temperate, to be dignified, and to be sensible. 
And these are all marks of maturity in um, all of us, but particularly in an older man, that are going to be seen both here inside the church and definitely these marks of maturity are going to be observed outside the church. One of Ted's favorite sayings is Monday morning applicable. That's the reason our teaching, healthy teaching, needs to be Monday morning applicable so that as these older men grow up and mature, on Monday morning it's going to be evident to the world that they're living out their faith. Young men who live what they believe, and Paul includes Titus in this category because he's talking to Titus in verses 7 and 8, and Titus is a young man. Paul believes that young men need to be self-controlled. They need to be an example to others. They need to show integrity. They need to have seriousness and soundness in their speech so that they cannot be condemned. And Paul is hoping that as the young men of the church are taught to live out their beliefs, as they show through their actions and their words that they have a faith that has changed them on the inside, Paul is hoping that in this way, those who slander the church, those who want to say that the church is filled with hypocrites, they will be embarrassed and ashamed because those claims are going to be groundless. If young men live in this way, there won't be anything to base the church is filled with hypocrites on. 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16 talks about this on your sheet. Paul says to Timothy, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Paul's final words on conduct that reflects healthy teaching in the churches to slaves who actually made up a significant portion of the first century churches. Fortunately, our society no longer embraces slavery, so I believe that we can apply Paul's words to those of us in the body of believers who serve others, whether it's in ministry or whether um, it's in the workplace or even perhaps as we're servants to our own family. Servants who live out their faith should submit to those in authority over them. They should be respectful, honest, and trustworthy. Paul himself says this about living out our beliefs, no matter who we are, in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4.1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Pollster George Gallup, who does all those great things we read about as Gallup polls, polls that are so popular in today's society, everything is a poll these days, George Gallup discovered in a survey of Americans who claim to be Christians that 53% of them said their faith and their religion was very important to them. However, only 13% said they lived the faith they professed. That caused Mr. Gallup to say this after doing that survey. Americans need instruction badly in Bible study, prayer, and sharing the gospel. People in America are trying to be Christians without the Bible. A wise church teaches sound doctrine so that each of us does not have to be a Christian without knowing the truth of God's word. A wise church teaches sound doctrine so that each of us knows how to live out our faith. Our final big rock of truth for living as a wise church is a wise church understands that grace is the motivation for godly living. Let me read verses um, 
11 through 15 here. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Paul finishes his instructions to Titus on the conduct of those who believe by sharing with us that although healthy teaching is instructional and it's absolutely necessary in the church, it is grace that truly motivates us to live out our beliefs. Grace, which is God's unmerited favor, we don't deserve it, we can't buy it, and many times in our sinful natures we can't fully comprehend it but it's grace that's at the center of all that God has done for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 on your sheet says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, it's true that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And it's also true that a church can teach sound doctrine, but they can't force their people to live it out. When we in the church fully understand the gospel of grace, when we fully understand that we are forgiven and that salvation is available to all men through grace, we are led, as Paul says here, to say no to ungodliness and to worldly lifestyles and say yes to self-controlled and godly lives. I read a true story about a man by the name of George Wilson who was given the death penalty for killing a guard in an armed robbery. This was back in the 1800s, and Andrew Jackson was actually the president at this time. And because public opinion was against capital punishment, President Jackson decided to give George Wilson a pardon for his crime. But George Wilson didn't want the pardon, and he wouldn't accept it. And no one knew what to do with that. And so finally, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice John Marshall finally wrote a decision about what to do with the man that wouldn't accept his pardon. And this is what John Marshall said. He said that a pardon is only a piece of paper whose value must be determined by the one who receives it. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. Mr. Wilson refused to accept his pardon, and he was eventually executed. The good news for us is that each one of us, if we know our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has accepted our pardon. And we know that our pardon has come at the great expense of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we fully understand the value of grace in our lives. And it's that great value, the value of grace, knowing what Christ has done for us and why he's done for us that motivates each one of us to live like a true believer. God's gospel of grace motivates us because it reminds us of the unmerited favor in the past that we didn't deserve. It reminds us of the forgiveness of sins that we didn't deserve. And Paul tells us here that that unmerited favor, that grace also reminds us to look forward to our futures with Christ because he's going to return and take us home to be with him as his bride and his church. 
a wise church is going to understand that while we wait for that day, it's going to be God's grace, not anything else that a church does, but God's grace that's going to motivate us powerfully to spur us on to live a life that reflects God's glory. A wise church understands that they can do nothing more powerful than to teach and preach and proclaim God's grace. John, 1 John 3, 3, and it's not on your sheet, says this, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself because Christ is pure. So as we pursue the truth, ladies, together about living as a wise church, what do we need to take with us today after looking back at what Paul has said to Titus in these few verses? And I believe that our application is that a church is truly a place to belong and a place to become when it guards carefully and diligently against false teachers, when it consistently teaches sound doctrine so that we know how to live as a believer, and when it understands that it's always going to be grace alone that spurs us to live what we believe. These are the truths that build a wise church. Let's pray. Father, you are God of goodness and of grace, and we just praise you now. We praise you for the love that you give us. We praise you for the unmerited favor that you have bestowed on all of us. Father, we praise you for the truth of your word. Father, I just ask that we would be women who are wise in the world. I pray that we would be wise disciples. I pray that we would be part of making your church wise. Father, I pray that as we leave here today that these big rocks of truth would continue to speak to us, that we would continue to hold fast to them, we would continue to use them as a measuring stick as we live our lives. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies. I have some announcements to make for you in Wendy's place today. And the first one is is that you should have had evaluations uh, about the women's Bible study on your tables today. I hope you had time to fill those out and turn those in. We take your input and your uh, suggestions very seriously. So please make every effort to fill out that evaluation and leave it here. And if you take it home with you, which you're happy to do, please remember to bring it back next week. We'll have some more surveys next week, but the sooner you do it and fill it out, then it'll be one of those things that's off your plate, and you won't, as I said earlier to the leaders group, do like I do and find it under the back seat of your car come July. So fill it out here and turn it in. The second one is all of those beautiful Easter lilies that have been in the sanctuary are going to find a home in a dumpster tomorrow if we don't take them home with us today. So if you would like to have one or two or more of the Easter lilies that are all over the great room and outside here, please take it with you. You can um, enjoy them until the blooms die. Then you can actually plant them outside and they'll bloom again next year. So please take as many of the Easter lilies as you'd like to have. And finally, you were so faithful and kind and good to bring all those great goodies for our missionaries overseas to bless them. And Michael Watson has packed all those goodies. She took them all and she bought containers, packed them all up, has addressed them. And we have those packages outside. But we need people that will take one of those packages and go to the post office and mail it. So if you would be willing to bless one of the missionaries by sending her a care package, don't leave today without stopping and getting one of those packages to mail. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.